When it comes to renovating apartments, today's guest has renovated hundreds and hundreds of units, and that kind of experience ends up going a long way. So if you're interested in learning more specifically about how to manage and renovate units and what's important, whether you're a passive or active investor, today's episode is going to give you a lot of insight. So let's dive right into it. This is the Investor Mindset Podcast, and I'm Stephen Pesavento. For as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with understanding how we can think better, how we can be better, and how we can do better. And each episode, we explore lessons on motivation and mindset from the most successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the nation. And before we jump into the episode today, I wanted to remind you guys to go grab your copy of the Passive Investor Playbook, The Ultimate Guide to Passive Investing. And you can find your copy at theinvestormindset.com slash passive. You can find that right here in the show notes. The Passive Investor Playbook is full of all the foundational information you're going to need to start learning. How do you go and make those smart decisions as a passive investor? How do you go about vetting sponsors? How do you go about deciding what your investment goals are, whether you want to be active or passive? And of course, what type of investment opportunities are you looking for? We dive really deep into some great topics. We've covered a lot of these in uh, some short podcast episodes, but you can grab the full guide full of graphs, pictures, and plenty of information right over at theinvestormindset.com slash passive. Look forward to uh, having you enjoy that. And uh, let's get right back to it. All right, guys, welcome back to the Investor Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Pesavento, where each week we share mindset tips and investing strategies to help you take your investing career to the next level. And today, I'm grateful I have Nathan Tabor in the studio. How are you doing today, Nathan? Great, Stephen. Uh, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's, it's really good to be here with you. Well, I'm excited to talk with you because you're somebody that I know personally have had the opportunity to build some relationship with. And for those of you guys who don't know, Nathan has successfully funded and operated more than two dozen businesses since 1999, grossing over $150 million in gross sales. His experience spans areas of commercial real estate acquisition, redevelopment, auto sales, direct product sales web-based marketing and strategic partnerships and facilitation. He coaches people on how to make changes happen in their life. But today, what we're going to really be talking about is his bread and butter, the real earner out of all of his businesses, being a heavy redevelopment operator focused on redeveloping mid-sized multifamily, specifically in North Carolina. So we're going to be getting into some really good topics on that front. So uh, you ready to get into things, Nathan? Hey, I'm ready. Let's go. All right. So starting out where I always like to start, tell me if we start out by looking back at earlier in your life, what events or influences from your childhood shaped who you are today? Probably just that um, not taking no for an answer. I'm the youngest of three boys. Grew, we grew up on a farm in Alabama, you know, just being told no a lot, being the youngest. No, we don't want to do that. And trying to you know fight through that adversity, you know, looking back, it was just nothing compared to real life. But at the time, it was kind of becoming a scrapper, you know, just making things work put together. And, you know, getting involved in business, there's this kind of a mindset that, oh, I'm going to start this and it's going to be successful. And that's not how it is, right? I mean, you start something and sometimes it fails and sometimes it fails and it fails and it continues to fail. So I think that's probably one of the biggest things growing up, um, playing sports and, and all of that is just realizing that 
you know, sometimes you're going to fall down, but you got to get back up. Well, I think that's such a good thing to remember. And for all the listeners out there to ask yourself, how can I apply this in my own life? And if, if the, the lesson is that you were the youngest child, you found a way to always be putting things together, to be scrapping, you created a story that it was possible for you to to be able to hobble those things together and to be able to find a way forward versus you could have created a story that you couldn't, that you had to rely on other people because you're the youngest. So for everyone who's listening, think to yourself how you can apply this in your life and be able to push you forward in the right direction. And so when it comes to redevelopment, what that really means is that you're going in and doing heavy value add. You're renovating and repositioning these multifamily units so that you're able to attract a better tenant class and really be able to operate a much more efficient and effective product. So talk to me a little bit about why you focused on the heavy redevelopment space when there's so many different asset classes and places to focus in real estate. Well, I mean, for me, you know, it was just kind of fell into my lap. To be honest, I was in another business, a buy here, pay here car lot, and somebody walked in just off the street and was like, hey, do you want to buy an 18-unit apartment complex? This was 2006. But after doing a few deals and then stepping back and looking at real estate, you know, I looked at time, I looked at location, I looked at availability, you know, all the things I was going to need to do it, where if I was going to spend my time, could I make the most money? And in the Piedmont Triad, without having to travel, and I already knew some crews and some people in the area. It made the most you know, sense to stay in this area and to also do that. It's kind of a sweet spot. 20 to 60, 70 units is where I try to play in because it's a little bit above your local just investor who's building a portfolio of 20 or 30. But it's, it's too small for the national folks to bring in their national management companies. Absolutely. And that's a really, really good thing to remember is like, how can you differentiate yourself in the market when so many syndicators and so many of the operators that we work with at Von Finch are focused on institutional quality assets and they're buying them across the country, or maybe they don't live in that market, but they're buying in a specific market, you know, two time zones away. They have to buy at a certain size in order for the economies of scale to work. And that local investor might not have the same amount of capital. So it really gives you an advantage. Plus, when you're looking at redevelopment, it's something that takes a little bit more focus to make sure that all the pieces are going really well. And so buying, being able to be local, I think you've really been able to build a nice niche for yourself. So when you're going about managing heavy redevelopment, when you're managing a renovation at that kind of scale, what have you found to be the most important factors that lead to success? I mean, the number one thing I would say in that is preparing for the unknown. Now I'm dealing in class C property, you know, 40 to 50 years old, deferred maintenance has piled up. So it's not been taken care of at least in the last 15, 20 years. So there's some long-term rot and water damage and things like that. But looking at how do you figure out is the floor underneath the toilet rotten? Is there, you know, damage underneath the, the shingles where they put the second layer on? Well, I mean, most likely if there's a second layer on, the first one was leaking. So there's probably, you know, there probably are damages or sewer lines. One of those things you can't see, you know, is it under a, a foundation? Is it running through the roots of a tree? So that has really become my focus is kind of being a due diligence expert of how do I find these things out before I buy it 
So then when I do and I start my renovations, I don't find this $100,000 mistake that I missed. And it happened a few times where I missed something because someone else told me who was the expert that it was okay, but they weren't really the expert. I needed, to, you know, I needed someone else to do that. Yeah, it's really, really smart to make sure that you're understanding all the pieces that are going to come together on what's going to happen from a renovation standpoint. And so when managing those projects, so we've gone through, you've done some due diligence, you look to plan for the unknown, the known unknown, the things that you can't expect that are going to be there. What else have you found to be important? Just making sure you dig in making sure that you understand, you know, what needs to be done there, what's the cost. You know, you, you just think about it, break it down to kind of the small micro scale here. If you miss that all the kitchen cabinet flooring needs to be replaced and you've got 60 units, well, it's not a lot if it's one, but if it's a hundred dollars or $200 and then it's times 60, Let's say you get to a thousand dollars on a 10 cap rate, you've changed the value $10,000. That's just on one small thing. What if you forget to add, you know, kitchen knobs? What if you forget to add uh, toilets or, you know, some part of the plumb? I mean, you can miss one, two, three, you can miss 10 little things and change the value of your property $10,000, $100,000. So it's very critical to make sure that you have that list of what needs to be done. What is it going to cost? What's the permitting co you know, cost going to be? And making sure then that you build that buffer to cover that. Because if you don't, any money above what your renovation budget is, is what? It's you know, affecting your equity in the deal. And I think most people go in and they try to get the numbers done to make the deal work. They go in and they, they start, you know, really conservative and try to stay conservative on, oh, I don't need to redo this parking lot because it's not that bad. And then six months after they buy it, the insurance company comes up and says, if you don't redo this parking lot in 90 days, we're canceling your insurance. What do you do now? Well, you got to come up with the money to fix the parking lot. And I don't think most people, Stephen, are really digging in deep enough. They're just trying to get the deal done, but they're not thinking about what happens in the next month, year, two years, three years. I mean, they don't even do maintenance reserves. They're not putting back money for the coming 10 years from now when you have to replace half of the HVACs. So that's concerning because you want people to be successful in what they're doing. But if they're ignoring some very basic principles of real estate investing, they're going, it's not going to end well. Yeah. And this is the example of why it's so important to invest your capital with operators that have the experience and have learned on their own dime instead of yours. Because Nathan, you've done many, many projects. You've gone through this due diligence process. You've frankly been bitten by $100,000 unexpected fixes. I, I know what it can take to dig out a sewer line that's underneath a foundation. It's not cheap. It can be expensive. It can be a problem if you're not getting ahead of thinking through how am I going to scope these pipes? How am I going to make sure that going into it, I'm going to spend a little bit more money up front and more time and have that experience to know for sure that I'm going in with eyes wide open and the project truly does work. And sometimes you have to be aggressive because it's a competitive market, but that's where risk starts happening is when you're aggressive and you're not getting all the information that you need. And so it sounds to me like it's really important to put together an effective scope of work for the type of 
work that needs to be done. How does somebody like yourself go about determining which items do need to get completed in order for this project and property to be able to execute the business plan that you have in mind from the beginning? Yeah, I mean, a couple of different ways. One, you know, doing it, experience, everything I've talked about today are things that have happened to me, the parking lot and all that. So, you know, either learn through your own mistakes. You got a, a really good broker, which if a broker is giving you advice on how to do your due diligence and your innovations, they're outside of their broker thing. So I don't know how far I'd go with that. Hire a contractor, somebody locally that just comes in and they just, they're doing every, you know, they're giving you one invoice, one bill to turnkey. That's normally going to cost you 20, 30, 40% more than if you manage it yourself. Uh, and then the other is hiring a consultant, a coach, some, you know, whatever, or a program that you kind of some I do. And I think you guys, you know, do as well in your own of helping through the process. Well, it's so key to have that experience there next to you to be able to make those decisions. But personally, when you're scoping a project, what are you looking at and how are you thinking about deciding which items are going to get scoped in or scoped out. In other words, how do you decide that you're going to renovate all the units into what level? Well, I'll tell you how I started doing it. And it's, um, to me, it makes perfect sense. When I walk into a deal from the beginning to the end, I assume the owner's lying to me about all the paperwork he's given me. I assume every number is wrong. And then when I go into a unit, I assume everything is broken. I assume everything is not working. So when I walk in there, I'm not at zero building up. I'm at, it would cost $40,000 to completely restore this unit. And then as I go through, I mark down, mark off what's working. And then I have my for sure not working or unknown. So then I'm able to say, well, in this unit, there's $12,000 of potential work to be done. But 8,000 of it's for sure, 4,000, kind of 50-50, and I don't want to spend enough money to get into it to see what it is. So that's the where I'm going to negotiate now on lowering my offer to the owner based on that, what I'm unsure about and what risk am I willing to take in that. So that's how I look at my due diligence side is just start from what the worst case scenario is and work towards the best case scenario. Yeah, absolutely. So going into it from this perspective of I'm going to be searching for what do I not have to replace? And it's a good reminder that different asset class levels, in other words, a C-class apartment versus a B-class versus an A-class are going to have different problems. So having experience in A-class is not going to prepare you necessarily for the challenges that you're going to face in C-class or vice versa. In this example, you're really going in looking at a product that has a lot of deferred maintenance that really could use a heavy renovation. And then you're deciding what are the different pieces. And I think you pointed out something, and I'd love you to expand on if we could, about the difference between subcontracting out your own projects versus having a, a general contractor manage it. And what ends up going into the different costs and the different challenges when you go either direction. Can I touch on one thing real quick on the, the classes? Please. Well, a lot of times people, and I myself, I'm guilty of it as well, say class C. But even in class C, there's all types of class C's, right? Of course. You could have a class C down in Miami that's in, you know, nicer than most neighborhoods in, in, in America, but it's still class C because it's 20 years, you know, it's whatever. Or you can have class C that's all section eight, or you can have class C that's all blue collar worker. I mean, so you, you can't, 
you know, it can't be labeled that it's just class C because even within class C, there's all these variants that you need to be aware there's of. There's a niche within a niche. There's a niche within a niche. So you just have to make sure when you're looking at that, not just saying, oh, this is class C, it's going to be, you know, one, two, three, because it's not. Yeah, very market specific in real estate. And that's such a good thing to be reminded if you like, for example, you're in North Carolina and Piedmont area. If you were to come to Denver, class C would be a whole different bag of worms out here. Totally different operational expectations and standards of how these projects would be coming. So you'd come in with that experience that would start you ahead of many, but you'd still need to learn what specific is going on in your market. But even in, in Winston here, in, in the Piedmont Triad, there's class C properties that I wouldn't go to during the day or at night. And there's some class C properties I'd go hang out any time of the day just because where they're located in the type of tenant base. So back to, back to that original question, talk to me a little bit about what goes into the difference between when you're subcontracting out all the work and when a general contractor is going to be subcontracting out the work. And what are the pros and cons to doing both of those? Well, I mean, the, the pro of hiring somebody just to do it is, you know, your, your time is not in it. You're not there every day. You're not having to manage. You're just managing one person. And, you know, that's really convenient if you're not local to have one person that you're connecting with. But if you're able to manage the project and you can be there and hire contractors directly, you're going to save money. Because what happens is, is the contractor to renovate every unit like that, normal contractors don't have all of those trades working for them. So they're just subcontracting to the electrical company. They're subcontracting to the HVAC. So essentially you're becoming the subcontractor. You're overseeing the work and adding, you know, that 15, 20, 30, 40% is what a contractor adds. So you're able to save that because you're managing the project. But here's the downside to it. If you're managing the project, that means you have to be there. It means you have to be organized and be engaged and make sure that the work's getting done because I've had it happen to me, even with people I trust. Oh yeah, everything's done and I'm not able to get there on Friday afternoon, but I go ahead and pay them. Do you know what I find out Monday morning? Not only is the work not done, but none of the materials are there and the contractor's not answering his phone. So what do you do then? Well, you gotta go buy the materials again, hire somebody else to do it. So if you have a contractor in place, that is one benefit of having the contractor, your contract should you know, state if something like that happens, the contractor's liable for it. But if you're the one overseeing it and materials get stolen or work's not done, it's between you and the person you hired. Yeah, it's such, it's such an important point that when you're, when people are first getting started renovating properties, whether it's a house or it's a hundred units, there's all types of challenges that you're going to end up facing. And you just have to decide what are the challenges that you're going to be set up best to face. And can you afford to hire somebody else to handle all those things? And if you do, don't think that just because you hire a general contractor that you don't also have to still manage them and make sure the work is getting done at the highest quality, right? There's still a level of management. So there's definitely some upsides and downsides to that. So talk to me, Nathan, with somebody who's been in the market for so long, obviously there's some real advantages to flipping when the market is going down or it's slowly ascending because when it's going down, people really need to sell. There's an opportunity to buy. There's deferred maintenance. It's easier to get a deal. When the market 
market's going up or it's at a peak, it can be a lot harder to find those deals, to find things that have enough meat on the bone to really do the renovations necessary and have enough upside. Talk to me a little bit about where you see the market currently and how you're looking at buying projects in your specific region using your specific strategy right now? And what are some of the things that you look out for when we're at the place in the market that we may be right now? Yeah. Well, so in my area, of course, the class I'm in, you know, if you're in a class A building, you know, somewhere that, you know, you're going to be a little different. But as far as, you know, class C and in our area that we have going on here, what I'm really looking at is, you know, what's the eviction rate going? What's the property looking like? Is it in good condition? I see that there's there's trouble underneath the water, in my opinion. I mean, interest rates are the lowest they've ever been. There's 34-ish million people that the National Apartment Association says hasn't paid rent in some form or fashion since February or March. You know, we see all these stories of people leaving all their rentals in New York or big, you know, metro areas and moving to the country. We don't know if COVID's going to, is it going to be, you know, January is going to poof and be gone, or are we going to be here, January, you know, December 2021, having the same conversations about masks and vaccines? I don't know. But I think there is, I don't know if I want to say danger, but the market is so hot right now. People are paying way above what a cap rate should be holding. I mean, in our area here, that class C has been eight to eight and a half cap rate. And people are paying a point off of that, a point and a half off of it. The numbers can't hold. You can't raise that rent. That area is $550 a month. You're not going to get to $700. Even if you renovate it, it's in an area that can't get to there. So I see that in the, in the near future, three months, maybe 18 months, which I consider near future at 47, is there's going to be a lot more product coming on the market. And I think there's two reasons for it. One, owners who can't afford to continue to hold on, they're not getting paid their rent. When they do get the units back, there's so much damage to them uh, that they have to renovate them, but they don't have the money. Now they're negotiating with the bank to get out of them, you know, short sale or whatever it is. The other is, I think there will be some owners who say, hey, you know what? This money's been good. Real estate's been great to me, but I'm not going to go through this headache again. So I'm going to put my product on the market and sell just to get out of the headache. I'm, you know, I don't want to deal with not being able to evict anybody for six months. There's going to be more on the, you know, lower end, B, B, B minus C area, because those are the ones typically that you see right now of having the, the rent uh, payments and things like that. So I think there's going to be some great opportunity in real estate for investors to get in. And I think there's going to be a lot of people who are just going to get out and take a little you know, a little lump on the head because they just don't want to deal with what's happened over the last 10 months. They don't have to deal with it again. Yeah. It's so key because in life, more oftentimes than not, the majority of people are looking to 
push themselves as far away from uncertainty and pull themselves as close to certainty as they possibly can. Even though we all believe the illusion that somehow we have control or that anything is actually certain, that's a whole nother conversation. But more often time than not, that's what people are drawn to. So if they've been owners for a long time, they may think, hey, we might be at the end of this. They may be in a situation where they haven't been managing in quite as well and things were great for them while we were riding the train up. But when the train starts to flatten out, or maybe even if the train starts heading downhill, then those operators who weren't operating as tightly, that didn't have that experience, that that weren't really serving their clients uh, and their, their uh, tenants are going to be in rough water. And that's an opportunity for us as real estate investors to come in with experience and come and reposition and take those units to a whole nother level. And so, you know, so many different opinions and views you guys have got to chew on and decide what's right for you. But with so many years, Nathan, I, I think you've definitely seen the ups and downs. We're in a time of massive uncertainty because we have no idea. Is this going to continue for another five years? Is this the new way that it's going to be? In my opinion, I do think things are going to look up. Now, I'm a long-term look-up kind of person. I always think there's even a benefit, even if the whole world was burning down and crashing, there's still a lot of upside that happens even with what's been going on. There's a lot of upside with COVID. So with what you described, how do you personally navigate when the right time to buy is or what the right assets to buy? Because you don't want to be sitting on the sidelines if the market just continues to be in the same direction because people have been saying that for the last four or five years. Yet, obviously, we're clearly at a pinnacle point where some type of change may come. So how do you navigate it? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, look at it from a due diligence side, you know, is this what's the area like? What's the property like? Are they going up? Are they going down? You know, your traditional due diligence, you know, what's your risk? How much of a risk do you want? Do you want, you know, little to no risk or do you want great risk? I think sometimes people, they think about that when they're doing, you know, getting into a real estate deal, but they don't really think about like how much comfort do you want? Because the more comfort you get, the less the return. So I think they need to gauge that when they're putting their money into something. Um, and then, you know, talking to someone else, seeking counsels, you know, hey, what do you think about this? Listening to podcasts, looking, you know, doing at some point you can learn too much, right? Or you'll never learn all of it. And you just find yourself just trying to learn. At some point you have to disconnect and do. But if you're having a challenge there, you're not understanding the market or you're not understanding something, don't just ignore it, which I've done in my own career. Like, oh, that's not a big deal until it becomes a deal. But find somebody and ask them like, hey, I don't understand this and get clarity on it. Because what I have found, normally those things I don't get clarity on, one of them comes back to bite me. And it normally it starts out as a small thing, but by the time it gets to where it's full on, it's a big issue. So just find, you know, drop the, I don't know if it's pride or ego in us or what it is that we don't want to go ask somebody and say, hey, you know what, Stephen, I don't know, or I'm not sure what to do here. I do it. I have people I work with. I have friends, family that I'll send stuff to. So find somebody and ask them, what do you think about this? And what should I do? And I think you'll find some good, solid advice and, you know, get a good foundation in that deal by, you know, looking at those couple different things. Yeah, that's really good advice. It's the whole idea of finding other people who are doing what you want to do in your area, in your market, or outside of your market that you can learn from, ask questions, and really clue in on and check in and see, hey, well, what's working, what's not, and how can we 
best navigate this together. So this has been awesome, Nathan. I love talking to you. Look forward to continuing the conversation. But where can people find out more about you or get in touch? They can find out more about me at uh, realestate.nathantabor.com. Of course, I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn and all that. Please connect with me. And I'll leave everybody with this uh, kind of thought or it's kind of a question, more of a thought. And if you don't know the answer, then you got to find it out before you do your next deal. Who owns fire hydrants? Do you know? I have no idea. I have no idea who owns fire hydrants. Well, I found out in a deal and it was about a $100,000 bullet missed over the issue. So... I'll go ahead and tell you, the, the assumption is, is owned by a government entity. Yeah, but property, property, multifamily, commercial, all is in the deed will tell you who owns that fire hydrant. And if the deed says that the property owner owns it, guess who has to maintain it? The property owner. Mm. So that was one of those when I found out that I owned almost a mile of piping and like six hydrants and they were going to have to send out the fire marshal to do a test. It passed, thankfully. I was like, who would ever think that fire hydrants aren't owned by the fire station? Don't get caught with that same challenges, guys. That's that's really big. You know, obviously everything's market specific, but when those kind of unknowns come up in your deal, imagine what the outcome could be if it didn't go the direction you want. So get smart, ask these questions, get some mentorship. And thank you so much, Nathan. Look forward to the next time we get to hang out. Thanks, brother. Thank you for listening to the Investor Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Head over to theinvestormindset.com to join the Insider Club, where we share tools and strategies from the top investors and entrepreneurs on how to take it to the next level.